Welcome to episode 48 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, and Mike also draws on his experiences working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode will be part two of our series discussing the croissant diet. And in part one, we started digging into the reactive oxygen species theory of obesity, where we discussed the major issues with this theory and dug into the biochemistry and physiology a little bit. And today we'll be continuing that by discussing the SCD1 theory of obesity, which builds on the reactive oxygen species theory of obesity. And the SCD1 theory basically is the idea that elevated levels of SCD1 cause obesity and that decreasing SCD1 by excessively increasing oxidative stress is the best way to lose fat. So we'll be discussing the major issues there as well as why fructose does not drive fat gain or necessarily increase SCD1. We'll be talking about why the polyunsaturated fats are harmful even if they decrease SCD1, and we'll again be discussing why fat burning is not the answer for healthy fat loss. If you are new to this podcast, then after listening through today's episode, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen through episodes one through seven, where we took some time to create a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health is concerned. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you'll find the articles and studies and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are struggling with any low energy symptoms, whether that is weight gain or chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, joint pain, gut or digestive issues, brain fog, poor sleep or hormonal imbalances, or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I will walk you through the main things that you want to do as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned, so that you can maximize your cellular energy and I'll also explain why this is the key to resolving these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. So the second major component of Brad's diet perspective or perspective as far as the best way to achieve weight loss and health has to do with his SCD1 theory of obesity. So I figured we would just start by explaining what SCD1 is and like where it's involved and when we're going to see elevations and decreases because that's a huge part of what he's seeing as a, as a major factor in, in terms of obesity and health. So SCD1 stands for steroid CoA desaturase 1, which is, you know, it, it sounds, I guess, a little complicated, but it, it does something that's relatively simple which is that it converts a it converts saturated fats into monounsaturated fats and it tends to be very particular saturated fats which are the ones that we are producing ourselves and so scd is found mostly in the liver and in body fat which is where uh, which is where you would see um, fat being produced typically and when there is excess amounts of fat being produced you see an increase in activity of SCD1, basically converting that saturated fat, which we only produce 
saturated fat immediately. And then uh, we convert that saturated fat to a monounsaturated fat. And as we've talked about before, both saturated fats and monounsaturated fats are extremely stable, especially when you compare them to polyunsaturated fats. So while a monounsaturated fat might be slightly less stable than a saturated fat, it's still an extremely stable fat that is that does have various purposes uh, in our in our bodies, and we'll get to that and why it's important. But uh, basically, so when you'll see an increase in SCD1 is when you are producing an excessive amount of fat. And so that would be a state called lipogenesis, where you're producing uh, fat, that's what lipogenesis means. And along with that, there tends to be excessive amounts of inflammation too. And so the, you know, some of the times when you might see this, and we'll dig into this a little bit more is, uh, for example, in like a rat, when they're fed excessive amounts of fructose, and they've got a lot of endotoxin circulating, or they're also eating a lot of polyunsaturated fats, you'll see a lot of lipogenesis, You'll see it in states of obesity and diabetes or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You'll see it in basically a ton of different excessively stressful states and states where you have basically a blockage of energy production, a blockage of the ability to convert some substrate that's coming from food into energy, which basically leads to that substrate being diverted toward uh, toward the production of fat. So in the liver, this is where we'll be talking about this the most, but basically an example was uh, for the rat uh, situation where if you have a lot of polyunsaturated fats or you have a lot of endotoxin, that's going to block the ability to convert that fructose to uh, energy. And instead, that fructose basically leads to a buildup of acetyl-CoA because you have blockages along the electron transport chain and blockages along the Krebs cycle that lead to a buildup of acetyl-CoA. And that acetyl-CoA gets shunted off and and diverted to a pathway that leads to fat production so you end up with a lot of fat being produced and then you have a an adaptive increase in scd1 to convert some of that fat to monounsaturated fat so it can uh, serve various purposes yeah i also think it's important to note here that in obesity diabetes non-alcoholic fatty liver disease excess fructose feeding and most of these metabolic syndrome states which is like a whole classification of uh, diseases that have like sort of the same features with hyperlipidemia that they're generally characterized by high, by states of high endotoxin or uh, they call it low grade endotoxemia in the blood uh, and endo and even in other inflammatory states, there's like a generic response in the serum or in the blood. It's called an acute phase response and it's categorized by the liver producing a series of proteins but in response to inflammatory mediators uh, like tumor necrosis factor alpha, and then also upregulating lipogenesis. And that can increase cholesterol and increase triglycerides in the bloodstream because they have, uh, they have immune modulating effects or immunoprotective effects. And then they help deal with inflammation and toxins and, and every, basically it, it just a, it's just a huge general response to stress or inflammation. Um, and so basically when you have studies where you're going to feed rats a ton of fructose, what they've already shown, and this happens in humans, happens in monkeys, happens in rats, happens in mice, that you find high levels of endotoxin in the portal vein because fructose isn't absorbed very well by, uh, by most, by the, the mammal studied or the, these types of mammals studied without glucose. So you, so basically what you're seeing is a state of endotoxemia. So when you're trying to draw parallels there, then you can also see that in uh, with the obesity and diabetes, et cetera, they're all characterized by this high amount of endotoxin 
And so it's kind of, so with the acute phase response, when you're, when you create hyperlipidemia, where you have that elevation in triglycerides and cholesterol, that is because the liver is upregulating fatty acid production. And when you do upregulate fatty acid production in these states, it's going to be saturated. So SCD1 also upregulates as well to convert that saturated fat into, or some of that saturated fat into monounsaturated fat. So like it's, it's, it's sort of an association to just say, oh, you see SCD1 in these, in, in obesity, diabetes, and all these rats fed fructose. So therefore, sugar or fructose or whatever is, is causing this upregulation SCD1 and an SCD1 is what's, is what's causing fat gain. Um, it, it, there's much more to the picture than that. It's not just a straight pathway. You have to consider the other context, which is that a lot the inflammatory states are upregulating the acute phase response as well. Yeah. And we'll dig into all that in more detail. But as you said, one of the more common things that will drive that state is endotoxin and that will be a huge confounding factor that we'll that we'll discuss and so basically what we're getting at is that scd1 is a part of an adaptive response to a an inflammatory state that involves a lot of fat production as you said uh, endotoxin can be involved there because fat production plays uh, protective effects in our immune system but also fat production is something that's going to happen anytime we have excess substrate and we can't convert it to energy and again that fat does have various other uses too just in our regular health of basically all sorts of organs and tissues you know like our skin and and eyes in particular are, are noteworthy ones where you have various cholesterol or lipid um, components that are extremely necessary and so scd1 is again it, it's part of this kind of adaptive cascade and it also has some other effect that are noteworthy so for one is is that when you so one thing that it does is it actually helps to slow down mitochondrial respiration and as we always talk about that's generally not a good thing and but it also makes sense as an adaptive situation because when you are producing excessive amounts of fat that's as we said a state of inflammation a state of blocked respiration and so you don't want to be further driving that respiration we talked about this a lot in the last episode where uh you know part one of the series where when you're producing energy very efficient inefficiently and you're producing a lot of oxidative compounds a lot of reactive oxygen species and causing a lot of oxidative stress that's can be extremely damaging to the cellular structure all the nucleic acids in there the protein and everything it can damage the cell considerably and lead to death so uh when that's happening we want there are adaptive responses that are saying hey let's Let's slow down there. Like we don't need to keep pushing this really inefficient energy production. And so SCD1 is one factor there that will help to do that because if there's a lot of fat being produced from excess substrate like glucose or fructose in a stressed out inflamed liver, then you don't want to keep trying to force that stressed inflamed uh, cell or those cells and those tissues to keep trying to produce energy. It's going to cause a lot of damage. So it's basically a release valve. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's one effect of SCD1 that's noteworthy uh, and kind of has this adaptive protective effect uh, beyond just kind of repurposing some of the fats that are produced. And so as we said, elevated amounts of SCD1 are seen in basically degenerative states that involve metabolic syndrome. So insulin resistance and diabetes are, are major factors there. Stress is a major factor there. And so it is noteworthy that along with this along with just you know it's not necessarily just 
lipogenesis, but also oxidative stress, those tend to go hand in hand, that is going to be driving SCD1. And that's going to, of course, play a major role, or it does play a major role in Brad's uh, perspective here because he is, tends to see that production of reactive oxygen species as a good thing. And so we'll delve into how that relates to SCD1. But along with that too, there is there are certain scenarios where excessive amounts of oxidative stress, very high levels of reactive oxygen species will lower SCD1. And that's kind of where he sees um, fatty acid oxidation as a good thing. And we'll get to that. But, Which is, yeah, questionable. Right, right. Definitely questionable. So, uh, yeah, I guess. Before you go forward with getting to that, I just want to point out here that the 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 pair or the i guess the parallel where if you have a high amount of substrate so say if you're eating a high carb diet like a very amount like a large amount of carbs then you can get some fat production in the liver that is not the same thing as elevating and the acute phase response from like something like inflammation induced by endotoxin while they can both even at least in the rats they can both have this upregulation of scd1 so it both states don't necessarily mean pathology, whereas one state is a pathology and the other state is is just, you know, that's physiologic. That's what you would want to happen. If you, you know, if you're eating it, at least, especially in rats or mice, if you're going to, if you're going to feed them a very high sugar diet, you're going to see their livers produce a lot of fat. Um, and that's, that's just normal. So you, it really, you have to look at the whole context here. And, and the other thing is you have to, with that said, because this applies to things like physiologic insulin resistance versus uh, pathologic insulin resistance or things like that, it really depends on the context. So it can't just be sweeping generalization of, oh, SCD1's upregulated. Well, it's like, yeah, when the liver is going to produce a large amount of fat from substrate or in an acute phase response or from an inflammatory response, whatever, then yes, uh, SCD1, especially in rats and mice, will be upregulated. Um, I, I just want, I think that's important to point out to make that distinction so that we don't it's not just across the board oh this is bad right and as we'll get to too i know i know you mentioned like having some sugar fructose tending to increase lipogenesis and it and it does but in very varying amounts depending on the organism depending on what kind of state they're in what else is present like polyunsaturated fats and endotoxin so uh yeah we'll, we'll get to that um but it is worth bringing up that again it's it very similarly to the situation with reactive oxygen species and hormesis and all of those quote unquote stress pathways is it depends on the context through which these things are being um, increased or, or we're seeing high levels. And just because they're in this case, just because it's present during pathology or in pathological states doesn't mean that any increases are inherently problematic. However, you know, and again, they are adaptive, so it's worth mentioning that. However, I do think that generally we don't want to see high SCD one, but we'll, yeah. we'll get there. So, but there's different. Yeah, all this there's a difference in when it's occurring in, in general. I think it's yeah. important because so we don't just have like oh, anytime you see it, because I think that's sort of what the narrative is or implies so far for at least from this perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could call it Brad's perspective or the fire in the bottle perspective, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So let's so let's explain that. So we kind of mentioned what SCD one is, but the perspective from um, that that Brad is putting forth through uh, you know the fire in a bottle perspective is yeah. uh, that basically because you see SCD one increasing in all these situations, and because SCD one increases the unsaturation of saturated fat from 
fully saturated fat to monounsaturated fat, uh, we don't want to be seeing high levels of SCD1, which, as we said, definitely makes sense to an extent. So we'll get there. But uh, so basically, from his view, decreasing SCD1 is is basically paramount. And if you don't, and you have a lot of monounsaturated fat production, that's not going to lead to as much reactive oxygen species production as saturated fats, and that's going to prevent all those effects that he's saying are good from excessive oxidative stress. So yeah. we talked about this in, in in the last one where we, from his view, you want to see excessive amounts of reactive oxygen species being produced through the oxidation of mostly saturated fats. And that's going to lead to all of those defensive reactions, the uh, uncoupling and the activation of all those kind of stress pathways and eventually fat loss. And so he's saying, if you have all these monounsaturated fats from the upregulation of SCD1, then you're going to have a problem. You're not going to be able to produce enough reactive oxygen species, and then you're going to be left without being able to burn fat and without this this fat browning state and without this thermogenic state. And uncoupling and all that, yeah. Right. Which are all adaptive mechanisms. They're all to deal with the issue of too much ROS. Right, right. Yeah, so already I don't see that as, you know, I, I see, we already acknowledge that we see less oxidative stress as a good thing, but from his perspective, that's not a good thing, and that's why you want to decrease SCD1 as much as possible. And so just, he's got a quote talking about this where he was saying that Native Americans only, they got fat if they ate only maple syrup. I think they become fat for the same reason that mice fed a high sugar, very low fat diet did. Massive upregulations of SCD1 and lipogenesis in their livers, which then exported huge quantities of monounsaturated fatty acids. These Native Americans would have been pathologically unable to trigger sufficient ROS production in their mitochondria when burning fat to induce uh, uncoupling protein mediated thermogenesis. I just think it's funny that it's that it's he's it's saying it's the pathology is that they're unable to trigger sufficient ROS, but it's like your cell is recognizing it as a pathology because it's it's moving towards uncoupling to deal with the excess ROS. Right. <laughs> right. What you're saying so just to clarify like you're saying that um, in the state of reactive, like if you have a lot of oxidative stress, the cell sees that as a problem. And so it leads to uncoupling. And so that that seems pathological to us. Of course, we know that Brad is coming from a perspective where that's not pathological. That's supposedly ideal. Um, we discussed why we don't agree with that last time. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. I find it funny, too. <laughs> I think the fact that the cell has, is having an adaptive response to it, would it, at least to me, seems to indicate some type of pathology on the cellular level. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would generally agree. Although I would generally agree. I mean, these pathways I definitely see as adapt adaptations towards stress. And as we've kind yeah. of clarified before, it's, I do, again, I think adaptation can be really beneficial if it's adaptation to increased energy production and it can sometimes lead to uncoupling. Also, it can sometimes lead to, uh, autophagy or mitochondrial yeah. biogenesis. So it, those are, it's content. It's always context. Right. I know we always say that and it's annoying, but it is always context. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I think with that quote, I mean, there's some things that we'll dig into there. But again, the, the main thing is that he's saying upregulation of SCD1 due to lipogenesis in the livers in the liver causes a lot of monounsaturated fat production, which is unable to produce enough oxidative stress. And that leads to a lack of uncoupling and a lack of uh, thermogenesis. So on the flip side here, though, the if you so just, I guess, to paint the picture on the flip side, if you had a high amount of SCD1 and you had increased amount of monounsaturated fatty acids, 
being produced with the SCD1, then the fat cells would basically um, not generate as much ROS and they would be insulin sensitive so that basically any carbohydrate that you would eat would be shuttled into the fat cell with insulin and then be converted into fats and stored as fats. And so basically that that's the, that's like the opposite of what he's saying that it, or that's what he's saying essentially is if you have too much SCD1, too much MUFA or polyunsaturated fatty acids within the fat cell, then they would be insulin sensitive. And if they are insulin sensitive, then they can take in glucose and convert it and store it as fat. And so the goal here is to create insulin insensitivity or insulin resistance um, so that the fat cells are unable to take in glucose essentially, or, or that's glucose and basically store it as fat. That's And then they'd also upregulate their burning of fat. Right. And that's through, that's because with the, up with the increased ROS and when you get the increased uncoupling protein production, then you on, then basically the electron transport chain and the Krebs cycle aren't linked together anymore. So you're just burning the fats away as heat. Right. So that's Which, what he's saying we, you want to do. I guess that second, that last part that I just discussed, whereas the previous part is what you don't want to do. You don't want the fat cells to be insulin sensitive. And then I think when the last podcast, I think we talked about at one point, the spectrum of fatty acids where you have, or glucose and fatty acids from an insulin sensitivity point of view, where when you have a lot of carbohydrate, you increase insulin sensitivity. And then on the opposite end, you have a lot of saturated fatty acids which would decrease insulin sensitivity. And this is purely from a burning perspective where polyunsaturated fatty acids are closer to glucose and monounsaturated fatty acids are closer to saturated fatty acids, but not quite as, um, not quite as strong at promoting insulin resistance as the saturated fatty acids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so with this, th this is part of why uh, Brad is not a fan of fructose. And that's because fructose, you know, especially in these studies looking at mice and rats, which we'll dig into, uh, fructose increases SCD1. And he argues that this is at least in part because it's producing a much lower level of reactive oxygen species than fatty acid oxidation. This is also why he thinks that insulin is a problem because you see increases in insulin and all these situations where you're seeing increases in SCD1. And then along with this as well is that this is he's saying that fatty acid oxidation is able to depress SCD1. He's saying that high, you know, I should specify saturated fatty acid oxidation. So what he's suggesting is that if you're oxidizing only saturated fats, you're going to produce extremely high levels of oxidative stress of reactive oxygen species. And that's going to actually depress SCD1. And that's also going to allow fatty acid oxidation to continue since high levels of SCD1 or increases in SCD1 will decrease mitochondrial respiration will decrease fat oxidation as we talked about because basically when you're producing fat you don't also want to be burning fat they're kind of opposing pathways so this is why so this is kind of again support for his view that you want to be continuing to increase fatty acid oxidation from saturated fats in terms of scd1 it will help to decrease it and we'll talk about why we don't necessarily agree with that but that's just kind of laying out some of his uh most important views there i would say or most central views as far as SCD1 goes. Okay. So Brad also talks about the relationship between polyunsaturated fats and SCD1, where the polyunsaturated fats tend to actually decrease SCD1, which kind of uh, kind of has juxtaposing effects considering the 
his other opinions on SC, or on polyunsaturated fats where they cause less oxidative stress when they're oxidized in the mitochondria. So because of that, they're not as ideal from that standpoint, but they do more directly decrease SCD1, and that seems to be more of a regulatory mechanism, uh, potentially because they're already unsaturated fats present, so SCD1 doesn't need to produce as many of the unsaturated fats, but uh, may also be kind of more of a regu- regulatory situation where the polyunsaturated fats tend to uh, decrease the output of, of fat or exportation of fat. And production of fat by the liver, which right. is something we've talked about before. Right. And that's through, I think, I think the mechanism was that we mentioned before, the study was showing that with increased polyunsaturated fatty acids, I think it increased uh, ER stress inside the cell, and then they wasn't able to properly produce uh, fatty acids to export, which I think we talked about being a bad thing in the context of generating an acute phase response. Right. Right. Basically preventing the adaptive response. Yep. So uh, while they might decrease SCD1, we don't necessarily see that as as a good thing, but Brad does, men- does mention that part as a good thing, and he says that there are basically there are certain polyunsaturated fats that uh, their decrease in SCD1 outweighs the lack of oxidative stress that they would cause, but others that might not be the case. So we'll talk about that more too, but I just wanted to mention that as one part of his, his kind of position. And then another as well, which is that he's recommending other things to decrease SCD1 that all involve similar stress pathways as far as the activation of AMP kinase and MAP kinase, MAPK. And uh, so that would involve things like metformin that he mentions and berberine, which is kind of looked at as an herbal form of metformin. And we've talked about this before as far as how those things are basically directly inhibit the production of energy at the electron transport chain, which is what leads to a lack of energy and leads to the increase in, in activity of AMP kinase and the activity of all these stress cascades and the wasting of sugar through glycolysis and the increased production of lactate because of that. So it basically causes this kind of disastrous state, which yes, increases AMPK, yes, may increase uncoupling, yes, may decrease SCD1, but definitely wouldn't look at it as, as a good thing. But we'll, I guess we'll, we'll get there in a little more detail in a bit. Yeah. And then also, I mean, the other thing with the metformin was inhibition on the Cori cycle, which can affect everything going on in the liver as well by depleting ATP to basically convert that lactate back to glucose. It, right. it, it will inhibit that whole process. Yeah. So you end up being stuck with a huge accumulation of lactate. Yeah. And the liver can't do anything with it. And the cells are just like, I mean, as known side effect with a decent amount of more of mortality of metformin is metformin and lactic acidosis. Where if metformin reaches high enough concentrations, you essentially, but I mean, and that I'm not saying that to, because you should never take metformin. I'm not telling anybody that, but what I'm saying is that th- that's how metformin, metformin's mechanism of action is basically to push towards glycolysis and uh, essentially waste your substrate. And so, yes, it will lower blood sugar levels that way, but it, I mean, it's, it doesn't push it towards things for the substrate towards uh, oxidizing through cell respiration. Right. And it does actually, tend, just as a side note, and I think we've mentioned this before, but it also has some beneficial effects on the gut, which... As an antibiotic, is, yeah. Right, which is similar to uh, berberine and similar to a lot of kind of phytochemicals or flavonoids and things from plant compounds that when they're in the gut, they have beneficial effects. And when they're absorbed systemically due to high doses, uh, they have relatively toxic effects that people consider to be antioxidant inducing and beneficial, but they're doing that through stress. And again, that tends to be the 
certain types of those um, chemicals or compounds in uh, like in foods, especially from like or herbs, you know, but specifically tends to be from like the leaves and seeds, uh, especially since those are relatively toxic to microbes, but also toxic to us if we're absorbing them systemically. So, yeah. And I think you can see this too with like the effects of uh, either like high fat, high sugar feeding, which is how they would produce like a fatty liver and upregulate SCD1 and, or even just like a high fructose feeding the effects in like a germ-free mice versus a, a non-germ-free mice are, are pretty, like are pretty different as far as what happens metabolically. And they, I think you also get SCD1 upregulation in those states but as far as like pathology and whatnot, it's not there because you don't, don't have the high amount of endotoxin coming from the gut, especially in like a high fructose feeding model. So there's like, that is a very big moderator of, you have to keep that in mind for any drug or for a lot of these, the feeding trials or metabolic studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of a nice transition. Why don't we start talking about some of the problems, which we've kind of touched on along the way, but let's really dig into some of the problems with these perspectives that all we want to do is just decrease SCD1. Anything that decreases SCD1 is a is a good thing. We want to be producing a ton of reactive oxygen species to help decrease SCD1. Uh, things that, you know, and, and the way to do that is through fatty acid oxidation. And the way not to do that is with fructose and insulin. So, yeah, why don't we dig into all that? I guess you might want to start because this was your favorite, your favorite <laughs> point here where you basically... Uh, fatty acid oxidation couldn't produce, I mean, at least based on the study that, I think this is the study that Brad was actually using is mm-hmm. I don't think fatty acid oxidation could produce as much ROS as that was needed to actually shut down SCD1. Um, and now it's just looking at comparing it. They, in the study, they compared it with different levels of hydrogen peroxide at the cellular level to see <laughs> like how much was needed to actually shut down SCD1. And Essentially, it was more than was needed for what? For like obesity and diabetes, which are states characterized by high ROS at the cellular level. So it's essentially calling for um, getting such, le- getting, maintaining high levels of ROS at the cellular or uh, maintaining high levels of ROS in general, more than states of obesity and diabetes to shut down uh, SCD1 production. So that, so that you don't produce monounsaturated fatty acids, you can keep your fat cells insulin resistant and continue to uncouple and burn through your fatty acid stores. Yeah, it's basically like an insane emergency situation. But yeah, so to, to, to add some context there, basically the, this idea that glucose oxidation is going to produce some amount of reactive oxygen species and that's increasing SCD1. And then fat oxidation is going to produce way more, and that's going to um, decrease SCD1 in that kind of ex- excessively high uh, oxidative stress, I think is, yeah, it's, it's very unlikely, especially when you're looking at the study. And they're, they're used, so what they basically did is they introduced all sorts of different damaging things to the liver that lead to a defensive reaction of lipogenesis, and that leads to all this inflammation. They used endotoxin in a couple of different doses, which we talked about quite a bit. They also used other factors like angio, uh, angiotensin, uh, norepinephrine. They exposed them to hypoxia and uh, and then also sugar. And we'll, we'll get in to high that. amounts. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and so what they found was that basically in response to like things like endotoxin and hypoxia and norepinephrine and angiotensin, all these stress factors, they all increased SCD1. 
And again, that makes sense. As we talked about earlier, SCD-1 is there as kind of one of those adaptive stress pathways to, you know, when there's a lot of lipogenesis going on, which is a part of that defensive reaction in the liver. And the... So so basically, if you're arguing, the first argument here is that fatty acid oxidation is going to produce more reactive oxygen species than these other things. So you're saying that basically a pretty decent dose of endotoxin, and when we were looking at this dose, it was insanely high compared to like endotoxin. And it was on an intracellular level too, right? Yeah, yeah. But what was it like? It was nano. It was what fifty nanograms or something. Mm-hmm. And in and when you're looking at, I think what we looked at was if you looked at like a gram negative infection, you had blood plasma levels of what was it? Uh, uh, it was in the pico. It was like up to was, 500 was, picograms. Yeah, it was right? like 450 picograms. So like we're on a completely different scale. Like we're at completely different units by what like a factor of a thousand. Right. Yeah. I mean, 500 picograms would be half of a nanogram. So. Yeah which is one one hundredth of what they were using, the the dose that they were using for endotoxins. So they used 100 times that dose in the cell directly and found that that produced, so, that produced a lot of oxidative stress and that oxidative stress increased SCD1. And so what Brad is basically arguing is that forget endotoxin, forget all those other things. If you're just burning saturated fats, you're going to produce even more oxidative stress than that, which I think is, is kind of, I mean, there's, there's definitely nothing in that study to suggest that that's the case. Uh, well, the other thing too is that that's not accounting for the cell upregulating uncoupling or anything like that to decrease ROS production as well. And it's right. obvious that the cell doesn't want that much ROS. <laughs> that's why it is uh, undergoing these adaptive mechanisms like increasing brown fat or anything like that. But to say that that is the best way to lose body weight, I think is, or I don't, mean, I don't know if he said it was the best way. I don't want to like make a straw man argument for him, but like but essentially trying to lose body fat through that way i think is probably is questionable like at what do you what are you exchanging like if you're trying to re- first of all we're not reaching that much ros but right. what's the trade off of trying to get that much ros to induce uh, uncoupling and and upregulation of brown fat and cause physiologic insulin resistance and at these ridiculous levels or whatever is being proposed yeah yeah and so along with this too is all of these stress-inducing factors tend to increase fatty acid oxidation. Generally, anything that increases stress does that. Uh, so when you're saying that something like endotoxin or hypoxia increases reactive oxygen species considerably and increases SCD1 and increases fatty acid oxidation, if that fatty acid oxidation was able to produce enough reactive oxygen species to decrease SCD1, then those other things wouldn't be able to increase SCD1. Then after endotoxin, you would see a decrease in SCD1. You wouldn't see an increase. So yeah. it's, I mean, those things are pretty hard it's to circular, reconcile. Yeah. 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 I don't see how you can have both of those things. And another was norepinephrine, which again, notoriously increases. Yeah. Fat oxidation, oxidation and uh, yeah. lipolysis. Or exactly. Lipolysis. Yeah. So if you have a lot of norepinephrine increasing fatty acid oxidation and increasing SCD1, it's hard to argue that increasing fatty acid oxidation decreases SCD1. That's as long as your tissues are saturated with, from this perspective, saturated with saturated fats. Right. If you have high amount of PUFA or monounsaturated fats in your fat stores, then when you increase norepinephrine, or even on the cellular level, when you increase norepinephrine, then technically you would still be insulin sensitive if you're going to oxidize them. <laughs> sure. Right. Right. Uh, 
Yeah. And along with that, too, as you mentioned, like as we were talking about the study, they were looking at obesogen, like obesity states and diabetic states, which are states of insulin resistance. So like in talking about this, they are in an insulin resistant state. And they already have elevated free fatty acids. Yeah. They are, they are oxidizing. The, those states are, especially diabetes type 2, is characterized by the oxidation of fatty acid in high states of insulin and, and blood sugar levels. It is literally an inability to oxidize glucose. Yeah. At least appropriately. Yeah. And yeah. And with and in that state that they're looking at, there is increases in SCD1, not decreases. So just looking at all of these things, I don't see a way that you can argue that fatty acid oxidation is going to produce so much oxidative stress that it's going to decrease uh, SCD1. And as you know as we get to as well like like the next kind of point there is that if you're getting to that point where you're producing so much oxidative stress that you're decreasing scd1 things are pretty bad like it's a really degenerative state so i'm gonna uh, yeah pull up it's this, a perfect time to pull it up yeah i'm gonna pull up this figure from that study where they're looking at uh on one hand we have the adaptive stage which is where you're producing you're in an obesity diabetes type state and you're producing a decent amount of oxidative stress here. The glucose is not being used efficiently. You are going to be driving towards fatty acid oxidation and whatever else. But in this case, because you're in the liver and you're not converting that, that sugar to energy, you're actually going to be producing a lot of fat, which is what leads to, you know, that's the lipogenic state. And that leads to the increases in SED1 as a you know backup mechanism or an adaptive mechanism, converting those saturated fats to monounsaturated fats. So we see that on the left where you have, you know, in this, non-ideal state you have an increase in scd1 it's blocking fatty acid oxidation it's which also happens you know it's also blocking pathways that lead to apoptosis and uh you know you have this kind of first stage and then on the right before you get there i think it's important to just to show here that the you're upregulating saturated fatty acid production in obesity and diabetes and then scd1 is up is upregulating concurrently with the saturated fatty acid production and converting those saturated fatty acids into monounsaturated fatty acids. So I think it's what's you, you produce palmitic and steric acid, and then it converts it to palmitoleic and oleic acid. And mm -hmm. then, then it basically pushes them into triglycerides where the liver can push them out into the bloodstream and move them towards the cells and tissues and, and what have you. So that's the first pathway on the left. And then in that state, you also have an increase in glucose and insulin as well. Yeah, pathologically, if you want yep. to call it that, because they aren't, you know, glucose isn't being used well and you have excess High insulin. amounts of fatty acids in the bloodstream and right. then your body's trying to increase. Uh, and so the glucose can be upregulated from gluconeogenesis at this point as well, but also from intake. And then insulin is upregulating as well, trying to get that glucose into the cell. So you sort of have this like mismatch of, substrate in the bloodstream at this point with high amounts of fatty acids and then also glucose and insulin and basically the first diagram is just showing that the std1 here is actually adaptive because it's converting all the saturated fatty acids being well, not all of them but converting some of the saturated fatty acids being produced into monounsaturated fatty acids to be exported um and this is important because like and there's a study that i guess you can put in the show notes but without std1 without high levels of std1 you you'll upregulate saturated fatty acid production and then you can essentially just get, it'll just stay in the liver and you just have really high amounts of like you get fatty liver essentially. Um, yeah. But then you can go into the maladaptive one next, which is, you, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and just to clarify too, when you're the problem in that state where you're, you're mentioning the fatty liver, 
and you're not able to convert those saturated fats to monounsaturated fats like that is an adapt you know it's worth noting that that's an adaptive process also we don't even want to be in a position where we're producing a ton of fat in the liver in the first place that is already a sign of things like obesity and diabetes of course it can happen outside of those stages and in low amounts but in large amounts it shouldn't really be happening ideally yeah so yeah so we have this not great situation on the left obesity diabetes all these problems um and high scd1 on the right you have what they say is the maladaptive stage where you have so much oxidative stress things have gone so wrong that you have an inhibition of scd1 and at that point you no longer have uh you no longer have an inhibition of fatty acid oxidation you also no longer have an inhibition of apoptosis and this is a state that they see in lipotoxic cardiomyopathy so basically in heart damage um to, so it's uh this was done at this was done with cardiomyocytes so this was looking mm-hmm. at cells the cells specifically and what happens when excess nutrient stimuli hormonal stimuli and so that that's basically with i think the norepinephrine lipopolysaccharide angiotensin endothelin one hypoxia or if you have like high amounts of exposed to high amounts of glucose you had the increased saturated fatty acids that that's basically the, the context of the picture and then when you're going on the maladaptive side the only differentiate differentiator between them is on the maladaptive side you had such high amounts of strong oxidative stress that it actually turned off scd1 and then you just basically had a high amount of saturated fatty acids at the cellular level that led to increased fatty acid oxidation and also increased apoptosis with lipotoxic cardiomyopathy but i think the increased fatty acid oxidation may i i'm guessing at this point based on the diagram but you the when you had the massive increases in fatty acid oxidation from the saturated fatty acids there you probably generated even more ros that signaled apoptosis at the cellular level right yeah it's probably at that point a feed forward reaction so yeah i mean the important part here is when you have such excessive amounts of oxidative stress that you're decreasing scd1 you're in a like in this case and if that's happening in the heart cell you're in a lipotoxic cardiomyopathic state Definitely not something that I would say you would want to be increasing. And so they have yeah. a quote that's discussing this. This is from that study where it says that increased expression of SCD1 uh, might protect from palmitic acid-induced fatty a- excessive fatty acid oxidation and apoptosis through mechanisms involving the downregulation of AMPK, inhibit- inhibition of ceramide and DAG synthesis, and inhibition of mitochondrial ROS generation. So Again, it's basically saying that that SCD1 is a protective mechanism. This is on that left adaptive side. It's a protective mechanism to protect against excessive reactive oxygen species production, uh, excessive fatty acid oxidation, and eventually excessive apoptosis. So, and then to continue on with that quote, it says, we suggest that this period is an adaptive stage. On the other hand, SCD1 expression is reduced when oxidative stress is increased. In this condition, saturated fatty acids are no longer converted to monounsaturated fatty acids and ceramide synthesis increases. And as a consequence, strong oxidative stress contributes to the onset of lipotoxic cardiomyopathy. Thus, we propose this as a maladaptive stage. So to clarify and relate this to Brad's point of view, he's suggesting that that's essentially what we want. We want to be in that state where you're producing so much reactive oxygen species from fatty acid oxidation that that's happening, which A, I don't think is possible just from fatty acid oxidation, and B, I don't think is desirable. Yeah. 
The other thing I want to point out here is they're using obesity and diabetes as the starting points here. And those states may be characterized by increased saturated fatty acid production by the liver, but they're also characterized by high amounts of endotoxin. So you don't only have saturated fatty acid causing the problem, you also have mitochondrial issues from the elevated endotoxin levels. From And usually I think it's gut-derived endotoxin. So you have like a chronic low-grade endotoxemia. And then you also have the, the that generates the acute phase response, which increases saturated fatty acid production by the liver, but also increases a whole host of inflammatory mediators like tumor necrosis factor alpha, interferon uh, gamma and a whole like and and norepinephrine and angiotensin et cetera et cetera et cetera that has like a systemic effect beyond just oh saturated fatty acids are being produced by the liver and to you know in push towards triglycerides or whatnot whatever whatever what have you whatever it is so it's like it's a systemic issue it's not just a question they're not just states of excess uh nutrient or I, I guess overnutrition is what people like to say. Like there's actually like impaired oxidation of the nutrition uh, in combination with nutrient deficiencies and, um, and possibly low grade infections and et cetera, et cetera, or overexposure to polyunsaturated fatty acids. Like there's a whole lot of issues going on. It's not just, Oh, your liver's producing too much saturated fatty acid and you don't have enough SCD one or whatever the, the argument could be based on this like one pathway. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's, that's a huge point, which is, again, another thing that Brad is arguing against is, is fructose and insulin, because supposedly those increase SCD1. And as that study was showing, they do, or they do in, in that particular, I think, I, don't, I think that was mice. Uh, but that's what you're, what you're getting at is the problem in these states is not just you have fructose and the fructose goes to the liver and just becomes fat. That's not what's happening. It's not what's going to happen in a healthy human. Especially but, when you change the fructose source from just granulated sugar or purified fructose added at a percentage of the diet to say like orange juice. If you and if you look at any of the studies where you where you have like orange juice or or grape juice or whatever it is, like a hundred percent juice, and then you put them in high fat, high sugar feeding controlled studies with rats, they actually are protective, which doesn't which shouldn't be explained based on their sugar content which they're high in obviously mm -hmm. including fructose including fructose yeah i mean they're 50 percent fructose right yeah yeah and uh and we have talked about that quite a bit i'll link back to those some of those episodes where we talked about why fructose is not a problem and why sugar is not a problem and why it doesn't inherently lead to fat accumulation in the liver I'll, I'll link to a couple articles on that uh you know where i've talked about that too but to kind of summarize it here it's and we've you've touched on a few times we've kind of alluded to it but basically uh in a healthy human we should be able to handle quite a bit of fructose in the liver it gets converted to glycogen some of it uh is going to be used directly to produce energy and some of it will be converted to other uh you know converted to glucose converted to other things and then released out of the liver and kind of spread out throughout the body so we're able to handle quite a bit of, of fructose when we're healthy but there are a lot of things that can prevent that from happening and instead will cause that fructose to become fat one of those is endotoxin. Another one is polyunsaturated fat. Another one is if you become a rat. And that's because uh, rats' livers are uh, generally shown to be able to handle very small amounts of fructose compared to ours before they start converting it into, uh, into fat. And that makes sense just because we need to have a much higher 
much more capable liver, considering that our liver is basically a storage organ of of uh, fuel for our brains, of, of glucose for our brains. And so uh, the fact that fructose goes directly to the liver, it's kind of that fructose ends up basically being that main fuel for our brains. It gets converted most glycogen. Yeah, to glucose and then glycogen to the liver, and then that ends up getting released for our brain to use. So uh, considering that we have much greater brain capacity and, and needs demands compared to a rat we need to have much better functioning livers that can handle a lot of fructose and ours happen to do that and so that's why you see uh, rat and mice studies where when they have fructose they tend to convert a lot of it to fat there's also studies showing that th- that even that doesn't even happen if you take away polyunsaturated fats or if you block metabolites with the polyunsaturated fats and uh, or as you said germ-free mice is another situation like that so there are even in rats they can they may be able to handle fructose more than it seems to even show in the in the research if they're not exposed to endotoxin and polyunsaturated fat and the problem is that in most of the fructose research they're exposed to both of those things uh, especially endotoxin because normally they're feeding pure fructose which is not well absorbed and leads to endotoxin production in the gut uh, but even without the pure fructose even if it's pure sucrose that can still cause similar issues and uh, you know on from there. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is it's kind of rare to find isolated fructose in, in nature. I mean, yeah. I think the only real sources are if you had apple juice or like uh, honey or agave nectar, which I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, usually it will come with glucose and eating yeah. a lot of those. This, the other thing too, I mean, eating a lot of those, you'll probably get digestive symptoms as well as whatever liver issue you're going to get. Um, because it can, it'll induce, for some people, probably bloating and diarrhea. But then the other thing too is for rats, digestive physiology and anatomy, it is pretty different as well. So it's kind of like you can't really draw a parallel from, oh, I'm going to read feed rats X grams of, or X percentage of diet of free fructose. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, it just doesn't cross well. And then the other thing too is, in a lot of stu- like in a, in some studies even with humans where they they don't really show necessarily the same thing but in overfeeding studies like you'll you're probably going to see increases in SDD1 and that's if you're going to overfeed somebody by a thousand calories a day they're probably going their liver will probably increase um will increase fat production and then will probably increase SDD1 to export the fat is in monounsaturated form so i mean and that's that's expected that's understood like it, that's what's supposed to happen if you're going to overfeed um and a lot of them, it's like in the overfeeding study, it'll be high amounts of, you know, something in the form of like glucose or fructose or sugar and white flour and some type of specific type of fat uh, to form a muffin or something like that. So, um, again, it's it's still using purified nutrients as the sole source for the experiment. Right. Well, and even in those overfeeding situations, normally they're limited by other factors like nutrient availability, polyunsaturated fats that are going to lead to more lipid accumulation. Like just eating extra, you know, an extra 500 calories or 1,000 calories doesn't even necessarily mean that that's going to happen. It depends on the context. But for example, when they looked at athletes who you're, they're kind of assuming are metabolically healthy, it takes thousands of grams of carbs before you're seeing decent, you know, considerable amounts of lipid production in the liver. Thousands? Yeah, and that carbohydrate overfeeding study, they weren't really producing significant amounts of uh, of fat from carbohydrates until they had around 1,500 grams of 
until they're taking about 1500 grams of carbs over a couple of days. It wasn't until that second day of eating basically 800 grams of carbs that they were starting to produce some amount of lipids. So part of that was because they had to refill a lot of glycogen, but they're also oxidizing a huge, you know, pounds of <laughs> pounds of carbohydrates, like half a kilogram, which I guess it's like a pound of carbs that they was, that was just being oxidized. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, at that point, SCD one would be regulated as you were saying, but it does require quite a bit of, of overfeeding. Yep. And I'm just saying it makes sense that SCD one would, and would upregulate with the Nova lipogenesis at that point. Yeah. And I also don't think that that's really a concern physiologically. We've talked yeah. about how our hunger signals at that point would be telling us not to continue eating, assuming that things are functioning well, you're oxidizing the carbs well, you have enough energy, that's going to turn off those hunger signals. I'll, I'll link to some of those studies and, and when we've talked about that before, where basically ATP levels in the liver and brain are some of the main regulators of hunger and also allow for leptin to, to have its to actually function properly, where if you have a lack of ATP, uh, the leptin signal won't actually turn off hunger. So, uh, and that's something, I'm, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, as long as assuming you're not eating Oreos as your main carb source, then you would probably be generating ATP from that carbohydrate because it'd be coming, if you know, it's coming from sweet potatoes or, um, or fruit juice or fruits or whatever, then within those categories, then it would be coming with nutrients as well to allow the carbs to be oxidized, which is also an important point because, right. you know, and that this is one of the issues you see with, with some people with diabetes or obesity, whatnot, is you're eating a high amount of refined carb source. So what do you see in the rat studies and, and, depending on you can basically deplete B vitamins, which are necessary for, um, for the utilization of those carbs. So there's more to, there's a, there's a lot more to the picture than just carb intake by itself. It's like what type of carbs you're eating. A lot of these rat studies, it's fructose, sucrose, glucose in free form. And that's what they're and Like, it's just added as a percentage of the diet. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the rat diet can literally be soybean oil, uh, casein protein, some type of, whatever your carb source is, whether it's starch, sucrose, fructose, or free glucose in isolated form a vitamin mineral mixture, and then some methionine because casein is slightly deficient in it. <laughs> right. so just like the most purified. So unless you're moving in that direction, which would be, I guess, akin to eating Oreos, which also has other stuff in there. <laughs> um, yeah. It, like if we're talking about like a whole foods diet, it changes the picture specific, like pretty specifically. And you know, your fruit juice, your whole fruit, your dried fruit, sweet potatoes, white potatoes, etc. Yeah. Assuming low endotoxin, low PUFA, all of, all of those factors yep. too. And one thing you were talking about earlier too is fructose absorption. And you had mentioned like apple juice and agave and things like that. And I did want to clarify also that some people don't have an issue. So I wanted to clarify first off what you're saying is those are all sources of carbohydrates that tend to contain more fructose than glucose. The, the ratio of fructose to glucose is higher. A lot more fructose than glucose. Yeah, but that isn't always an issue. Some some people, uh, you know, are able to, you know, even something as small as five grams more fructose is able to cause an issue, which could actually, you know, depending on how different that ratio is, could require a decent amount of carbohydrates. It depends uh, before you get to five grams more fructose than glucose. But for some people, they can absorb even a lot more free fructose than that. So it, yeah. it, there is individuality there. The study I think I read on it was between five and 50 grams for participants with an average, I think around 20. Yeah. If exactly. I remember correctly. Yeah. So with that being said, some of those higher fructose foods might not be an issue for a lot of people, but it's, yeah. that's kind of individual. Yep. I agree. 
Yeah. And also, you were, again, in talking, quote-unquote, negatively about those things, you do also have, in those cases, some of those beneficial plant compounds and nutrients that will help in other aspects of... of Especially ensuring. apple juice. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Agave is, and honey are relatively... Uh, they have other components in them, but it's mostly just sugars in a solution form. Right. A combination of free and free sugars and sucrose. And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So circling back to SCD1 and uh, and Brad's views, one, one of his other points that we talked about was the polyunsaturated fat side where the polyunsaturated fats do decrease SCD1, which he sees as a, as a bad thing. Um, but he also sees that they or he sees as a good thing, excuse me, but he sees that they decrease, supposedly decrease oxidative stress when they're burned in the mitochondria, which we would say is not necessarily accurate. We talked about that in the last episode that they end up increasing oxidative stress because most of the time the concern is not what's happening when they're being oxidized in the mitochondria, but what's happening outside of that. If they're incorporated into the actual mitochondrial membrane. Yeah. among And among then other. also reaching the, the process of getting from your mouth to your mitochondria. Are they ox- peroxidized in that process? Right, right. Uh, but but so I do. You know, I did want to point out some discrepancies here too, or just some issues that with the idea of PUFA being either harmful or beneficial, depending on whether their ability to decrease SCD one is able to outweigh their uh, their you know negative effects when they're being oxidized in the mitochondria. And you know, I did think it was. So, so I'm going to include a couple of quotes of, of his and then we'll, I guess, kind of discuss that because I don't want to be putting words in his mouth. So uh, he says, all unsaturated fats lower SCD1 production, polyunsaturated fats more than monounsaturated fat, bare fat can be, a relatively, can be relatively high in the polyunsaturated fat linoleic acid, similar to corn-fed lard. So if a native person is eating bare grease, SCD1 will be lowered to create an overall relatively saturated blend of body fat. The same thing is true of monounsaturated fats to a lesser degree, but there are a number of unsaturated fats that inhibit SCD1 much more specifically and to a far greater degree. So there's a lot going on here. Right. With that statement. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the main point is that he's saying that the, at least the lowering of the SCD1 is, is, a, uh, is a good thing. But he also then states that he still has, he's still not recommending PUFA consumption. In fact, you know, that's one of his main things that he's against. And he explains a little bit of this later on where he says, uh, paradoxically, the soybean oil and starch eating American has lowered overall pressure to upregulate SCD1 compared to the dairy eating person due to the SCD1 suppressing effect of polyunsaturated fat in soybean oil. However, the specific fatty downregulators of SCD1, which are CLA, palmitoleic acid, arachidonic acid, and others, are much more powerful down regulators of SCD1 and soybean oil doesn't have them. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that stored linoleic acid will start to cause a pathological inability to drive ROS production when cells switch from burning glucose to burning fat. A small amount of ROS tells the cell it's burning glucose and SCD1 should be upregulated. So he's basically saying that there are two problems with PUFA uh, and specifically he's talking about soybean oil in this case, just like kind of what maybe a typical American diet would involve. He's saying, for one, yes, it increases SCD1, but uh, not very strongly, basically not as strongly as CLA, palmitoleic acid, and arachidonic acid, although arachidonic acid would be a downstream metabolite of the linoleic acid he mentions. But 
But it'll be a full, well, yeah, but it'll be in preformed version in the dairy. Right, right. Because it'll just be, there's not a little lake ass, but there will be arachidonic, even right. small, small amounts. Right, right. And so then problem number two that he's saying is that when you're storing the linoleic acid, that's going to lead to an inability to produce enough reactive oxygen species when it's yep. being burned. By the fatty is, tissue. So right. then you'll basically have insulin-sensitive fat tissue is the <laughs> argument. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it, it's... I mean, I guess I don't have too much to add there. I just don't see it as... I don't see this as like the foundational principle to focus on. Especially, it just doesn't. You're saying like, SED one or SED one? Yeah. Like, I just don't see it as like the primary metabolic switch that we're looking for to determine what makes you obese or not. Because right. especially because it's just the mediator and in, in in like the chain where basically anytime you have increased de novo lipogenesis or an influx of saturated fats into the liver, the liver is going to upregulate SED one to convert them to monounsaturated, some of them to monounsaturated fats to export them to other tissues throughout the body. Because the body needs a certain amount of monounsaturated fats as well as saturated fats. I don't like I don't see it being the make or break on the entire situation, especially since we already broke apart the idea that you need to generate X amounts of ROS to shut down um, insulin sensitivity at the fat cells level. It just like that that part of the theory just doesn't seem like it's gonna hold water. So and the other thing is is the body seems to be upregulating SCD1 on purpose. Like it's, it's need, it's, it needs, apparently my guess would be that the body needs a certain amount of monounsaturated fatty acids. So when you have, so like trying to basically trying to modulate around SCD one is just sort of like beating around the bush of SCD one. Well, if we have enough PUFA, then we can lower, then we can lower SCD one. And it's like, well, yeah, because you don't need to produce the monounsaturated fat now because you have a more unsaturated fat. But in, even from our argument, that would, that's not necessary because the polyunsaturated, if you're going to intake a lot more polyunsaturated fatty acids, and he already recognized it's not a good thing, but now you're going to have a lot more peroxidative damage, or you're more likely to have peroxidative damage with an increase in polyunsaturated fatty acids. So, and then for him, it was, oh, they'll, then they'll be stored in the fat tissue, and then they'll be insulin, um, they'll be more insulin sensitive. It just, I just don't see where, like, this being the, the fulcrum or the the main point to focus on in the system, especially when you start looking at confounders for endotoxin in a lot of these states as well. I think it's I think it's more likely that in those states the endotoxemia is causing the issue and driving um, the fatty driving the the increased deposition of fat by changing hormonal function and also mitochondrial function in general. And then upregulating liver fat production. I don't think that the SU one is causing the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, no, I, I agree. And just kind of focusing in on, on the PUFA situation as well. You know, we talked in the last last episode about the problem being that, like, our, you know, from our view, he's viewing these as. Uh, agents of decreasing oxidative stress, and we view those them as increasing oxidative stress. And I think that this is kind of similar here in terms of the SCD1 situation, where he's saying that the omega, like that, the polyunsaturated fats are going to end up leading to more saturated fat, basically uh, being stored, and that may or may not be true in storage. It's 
relatively beside the point, I would say. Uh, but I mean, like by that knowledge, you're also just going to have a, a huge accumulation of, of saturated fat in the liver. And, uh, and anyway, the, the other side is that we know that the amount of polyunsaturated fats that are consumed is going to be reflected in the membrane composition of the mitochondria and of the cell as a whole, which whether or not it's a membrane, again, doesn't really matter here. It's going to affect the structural components here. And that's going to directly lead to some of those issues that we talked about in the last episode as far as increased lipid peroxidation, uh, a much decrease, like a, in a very decreased ability to produce energy, basically a direct uncoupling effect, which she's saying is a good thing in the first place. Yeah. So. yeah I just don't, it just doesn't, the, you know, it's like making SCD1 the centerpiece and then trying to modulate around that just doesn't make sense to me. Because your body is using SCD1 just when you have higher states of saturated fat in the liver to convert it to unsaturated. Like, I don't see that as a pathology. I don't see that as a problem. I don't see that as driving lipogenesis, especially, and I said this before, just like we, we don't, like, we don't have evidence that we're generating enough ROS with saturated fatty acids oxidizing in the fat cells to induce this insulin resistance at the fat cell level. Um, or that's not to induce the insulin resistance, but to turn off SCD1, excuse me. Because we do know that those fat cells become more insulin uh, resistant with or cell with saturated fat oxidation. Right. Um, so I just don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not seeing it, seeing that as the, as a primary driver. Right. Especially when you're the states you're comparing it in where like we have, we have an unknown and understood mechanism of why SD1 is upregulated in states of obesity and diabetes and um, impaired glucose tolerance, fatty liver, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, I mean, I basically see it as another offshoot of the, the exact, you know, the reactive oxygen species theory of obesity, which of course it is. I mean, that's why he's putting them both forth. They go hand in hand. It, it's the same, from my view, the same reductionist idea coming from hormesis. It's the same hormetic argument. Uh, and, you know, when you all end up arguing for that, you also end up arguing for basically anything that causes stress, which I don't think is, is always really recognized, but it's like, let's cause a pathology so that we can, so the body will have an adaptive response. Right. Like, so what happens if the pathology is not there? Or what happens if it is there? Are you supposed to create further pathology? Well, I mean, when we went through the graph, that's essentially what it, what the point of view was. Right. It's like we want to get to this point where we have this ridiculous amount of, uh, like, basically to toxicity is what the argument seems like it's for. Um, at least from my perspective, I don't want to put words in his mouth or create a straw man or anything. But it was like we want to generate enough ROS to shut down SCD one, but it's already recognized in the in the article. I think that that he actually posted that shutting off SCD1 with extensive amount of ROS, number one, didn't seem like it was possible to be just from fatty acid oxidation, but also number two, it would, it would actually cause apoptosis and fatty acid uh, toxicity within the cell, lipotoxicity within the cell. So right. like the argument, like I just, I just don't see that, that I don't see this mechanism as being very relevant as being like something to focus on for, for like, excessive amounts of weight loss. Now, whether or not his dietary strategy works or not, as far as like focusing on saturated fatty acids and, and whatnot is like, I don't disagree with him there right. as, as trying to avoid PUFA in general. 
um, and keeping more towards a saturated fatty acid. But again, I don't see eating monounsaturated fatty acids as a problem either. I just don't think that this is the main mechanism of the issues, especially in states of obesity or diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I see those as states characterized by high amounts of endotoxin and then endotoxin inhibiting mitochondrial function um, and then also driving an acute phase response and then at the same time changing the hormonal profile to one that induces deposition by upregulating adrenal function and cortisol and whatnot. So it's that seems more like more of an important mediator than anything to do with this one enzyme in the liver and pushing high amounts of reactive oxygen species. I don't even think is a good idea, especially through this mechanism. Right. And I like that you mentioned apoptosis and that maladaptive side, because that's another one where, I don't know, you hear that all the time. And again, this is kind of coming back to hermesis, not necessarily something Ambrad has said. Uh, but, you know, apoptosis is a good thing. It's just, you know, it's clearing out dead cells and it's anything that stimulates it is going to be good, just like autophagy. And yeah. it's, it's like, that's the problem with looking at these things in a reduced form, not in the, in the greater context, not as a systemic whole is that then you consider something like apoptosis is generally good. Yet that's what you see in, in that study where they were showing lipotoxic cardiomyopathy. Yeah. So, and, and I think, yeah, I think that CD one is an equivalent situation focusing on that as, as, uh, as the main determinant of what is, of whether something's healthy or not as its effects on SCD one. And, Along with that, too, I just wanted to circle back to one thing that I mentioned as far as hormesis goes, or you kind of mentioned, too, which is just that when when you're in a dysfunctional state, that's when you're seeing excessive amounts of oxidative stress, you're seeing dysfunction in adaptive stress pathways, you're seeing excessive fatty acid oxidation. We know that that's the backup, the backup uh, form of respiration. And yet, if you're arguing in favor of, of hormesis, then what you're saying is that those dysfunctions are the product of a lack of oxidative stress and you just need more. And yeah, I just think that, you know, that study that we were talking about in, with the CD1 happened to be a really good example of showing that that's not the case. When you add oxidative stress on top of pathology, you end up with, you know, like that quote, what they call maladaptive cell structure. Yeah. Death <laughs> destruction. Yeah, yeah. Which is not what you want. Right. So, I mean, I, it just and it comes back to what we talked about in the beginning like while some of our views on like strategies or implementation on in the real world you know not on this more theoretical world as far as you know saturated fats are good in a diet are you know probably better than the unsaturated fats where the focus on like either butter beef tallow chocolate uh coconut oil and even monounsaturated fats which is i guess a discrepancy with him like where i would say that you know quality olive oil or or a, mono, a macadamia oil wouldn't be a bad thing i mean yeah i don't think that, like i have number one i haven't seen them to cause massive amounts of weight gain to be honest especially considering i eat decent amount of monounsaturated fat i mean n equals one but and people that i've worked with using those oils hasn't caused the issue um mm. but i i just it's, I feel like the pathway itself or the idea or like the lens that we're looking at it, this hormetic lens is like, num besides being like very focused and I guess a little bit reductionistic, it also, like we already went through, it just doesn't pan out. Like we're not gen, like how could just oxidizing fats create that much ROS? You know, we're not seeing it. And then like we're seeing protective effects of SCD1 in certain states. And it's like in other states, yeah, when they didn't, when, 
but they didn't have SCD one. They didn't have, um, they didn't get diabetes or obesity or whatnot, but that was dependent on like the research model. Cause I think before we talked about, before we did the last, uh, the last video, when we were, when we were going through some of the SCD one stuff, when they fed the rats an increased amount of saturated fatty acids on top of not being SCD one knockout mice, they actually developed issues where in the other models they had feeded them, they had fed them high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids. And so like when you, ex when you then exacerbate where the pathology is in terms of like feeding them high amounts of saturated fatty acids without SCD one, then they develop serious issues. And so the SCD one is there for a reason. I mean, it's there to modulate the high, any high, like, and, and again, this is, you know, in just because saturated fats decrease or don't oxidize as much as polyunsaturated fats doesn't mean that that then eat unlimited amounts of saturated fats and it won't cause an issue. They're, they're still, you know, the, the body has a preference for a certain amount and it's right. Re it's regulating that by SCD one. So trying to dance around the SCD one, it doesn't seem to make, you know, especially when we already, especially when we already have the context of the SCD one issue being related to all these other, possibly being related to all these other factors or like the obesity and diabetes and fatty liver being related to other contextual factors around seeing the upregulation in SCD1, like it's an association. And it's because in those states you have upregulated fatty acid synthesis in the liver. I don't know if I'm making, if I'm being very clear, but it's, it's like I see it as the SCD1 is an associated factor because in all these states you have upregulated fatty acid synthesis in the liver, which we already know is saturated. I see it more as that. And the context of why these states are developing being the actual issues and not that the liver is producing fats and then SCD and then SCD ones converting them to monounsaturated fats. I, I don't see that being an issue. Yeah. And of course, if it's happening in excessive amounts, it's a sign of dysfunction. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's going to wrap up this series discussing the croissant diet. If you did enjoy it, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes or a review. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast, where you can take a look at the studies, articles, and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, whether that is weight gain, chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, chronic pain, brain fog, poor sleep, digestive symptoms or hormonal imbalances, or any other sorts of low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will walk you through the main things that you want to do to maximize your cellular energy. And I'll also explain how these symptoms and conditions really come down to a lack of cellular energy. And again, how you can adjust your diet and lifestyle to resolve them. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.